Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 79. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review. And you can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or visit us at our website at thetwocities.com. On today's episode, we're asking the question, does apologetics help us read the Old Testament? We're joined by Dr. Brent Strawn, who is professor of Old Testament at Duke Divinity School with a joint appointment as professor of law at Duke University. He's also the author of a number of important studies, including The Old Testament is Dying, A Diagnosis and Recommended Treatment, published by Baker, and more recently, Lies My Preacher Told Me, An Honest Look at the Old Testament, published by Westminster John Knox. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Brandon Hurlbert and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So continuing this conversation on apologetics, we're going to be looking at how apologetics impacts our reading of scripture uh, in the next two episodes. In this one, we're looking specifically at the Old Testament. And Brandon, what were some of your thoughts about this conversation that we had with Dr. Strawn? What I love about uh, Dr. Strawn's work, I mean, he writes on basically everything. Everything in the Old Testament he's written on. I mean, I've heard him give several papers at various conferences, and they're all on very different things in very different genres and very different parts of uh, the Old Testament. And so I think you can really hear his expertise come through, but also uh, what I really appreciated that I don't necessarily get at uh, NSBL or something was his more pastoral side of of him speaking as a Christian, speaking uh, as a minister, talking about the creed and how the Apostles' Creed might help us understand the the Old Testament. talking about the Gospels and how uh, they might provide some analogies with how we should understand history and historiography. So there's all, all sorts of things. And, and uh, I mean, unfortunately, our listeners won't be able to see it, but uh, he had a wonderful uh, little puppy uh, in his lap the whole time, which I thought it certainly improved the conversation. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a really enjoyable conversation, and I I really appreciated how he called us to a, a faithful reading of scripture that reads with the grain of scripture that that is something that cultivates love in us, love of God and love of neighbor. Um, some really, I thought, just wonderful, beautiful ways of engaging scripture that gets beyond the kind of tired questions of like. Did, did this happen? Did it happen this way? You know, there's kind of a constraint that apologetics has on our on our reading. And I thought Dr. Strawn helpfully kind of opened the horizons a bit for us to, to, to think about as we as we read scripture and sort of like, what are we reading it for? And why are we reading it? And I thought that was just really beautiful and really helpful. And with that, here's our conversation with Dr. Strawn. Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Strong. Oh, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. And of course, it's Brent to my friends. So. <laughs> well, Dr. Strong on the pod. <laughs> but uh, how, how about we begin? Uh, you know, we're in this series on apologetics. And one of the things that comes up a lot, I find, is that a lot of times those who are really interested in apologetics have a hard time reading their Bibles. They ask 
the same kinds of questions over and over again, you know, largely about, you know, historical questions, dating questions, uh, certain archaeological questions, you know, did, did this really happen? Did it really happen in this way? And there's certain like buzzy topics that get brought up over and over again, you know, like maybe the age of the earth or whether the flood was global or local or, you know, what's the date of the Exodus? Was there three Isaiahs or only one Isaiah? And it's just kind of this cul-de-sac of, you know, just these perennial questions. And there's so much that gets lost, uh, I think, along the way. I'm wondering if you could speak to this sort of like constraint of, of apologetics on our ability to read, especially the Old Testament, well. Yeah, I think uh, what you said is 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 right. I resonate with that. I mean, an, another example, more minor, but that that's caused people consternation. Students I've had cross my path in, in in the past would be like, you know, who killed Goliath, right? I mean, uh, or anytime you have a doublet or a triplet that doesn't match up exactly, you know, who anointed Jesus's feet, and and, and or I or rather, who got mad about Jesus's feed anointment, right? I mean, the gospel writers, all four preserve an account of that story, and they all four disagree on who was mad. Um, so, you know, that that is a problem for maybe the more, eh, I want to be careful how I put it, maybe I'll backtrack it later, but maybe a problem for the more literal-minded among us, or the more wooden, uh, in, mechanical kind of uh, mind, minded among us. But it's not a problem at the literary level, at least within the, the confines of the particular literary work itself, right? I mean, so maybe I shouldn't poach on your territory with the Gospels and all, right? <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, accounts that differ uh, can, be, can be accounted for in various ways. History is one way, um, kind of a harmonistic move is, is one way. Uh, but there are actually historical ways to account for such divergence that that don't involve harmonization or an appeal to an external, like, you know, ringing, ringer kind of source that would, would solve everything. Oh, it was this, this first, and then that. So I, I do think that if we are appealing to sort of extra biblical material too much to explain what's in our literary texts themselves, then we probably have something backward. Um, and we're not we're not actually in any more interpreting the text, but really interpreting something behind the text. Yeah, with with, with that issue um, about kind of like backgrounds, his, history, these sorts of things. I mean, uh, on the one hand, I think it, it's helpful to bring these things forward to to students or to the to our readers as a, as a way of saying that uh, these texts uh, come from a particular time and place. That they are you know real world documents. They they didn't fall out of the sky. You know these sorts of things. How do you strike that sort of a, a balance? Yeah, I mean, so like if we, it's always better maybe to take a specific example. So you know you have the multiple accounts in the Genesis stories about the endangered matriarch, where uh, you know she is a uh, pawned off as the patriarch's sister rather than um, his wife. Abraham does it twice. Isaac does it once. It's kind of like father, like son, I suppose. And the king who's involved with it is twice Abimelech. So that's a, a triplet. Um, not a doublet, but a triplet in kind of classical source critical discussion. It's the same story or a, a similar enough story told three different times. What gives? Well, you know, does it mean that it only happened once and we got to figure out the right one? And then that was the original one and the others are kind of literarily dependent or erroneous in some ways. 
is it that uh, they the, the story comes in in different um, sources, right? This is the classical source critical insight with regard to doublets and triplets that reduplicated stories probably came from different strands originally, different circles, however you want to put it. That's a historical response. Um, it's not harmonistic. It might not be apologetic and kind of uh, this kind of way I think that you're getting at in the podcast, you know, finding the one right answer, right? Um, it's not apologetic in that sense, but it is very much a historical explanation. It may not convince everybody, but it is a plausible historical reconstruction. But there's other ways to think about it, right? And this was the genius of the people who uh, really were at the forefront of a literary approach to the Bible in the early 80s especially Robert Alter came along and said, you know, these, these stories don't have to be uh, like a triplet or a doublet that is from different hands. Why not think about the way the story functions as a, as a typical scene about the ancestors and what they are prone to do and uh, how they're prone to uh, make certain mistakes over and over again um, and how that mistake actually gets passed on generationally from Abraham to Isaac. That's a literary approach, seems to me equally viable and uh, illuminating and, and allows one to encounter the text uh, as, as it is in Genesis without sort of contortions about harmonizing on the one hand or positing multiple sources on the other, which of course redaction critics, source critics, they, they love to disagree with each other about these things. So, so Alter may not be completely right either, but he does offer another kind of approach that just examines the, the conundrum in its literary context and imagines a way forward uh, as the texts come to us. I think the texts come to us in complicated ways. They're ancient, uh, and they, they, they seem to be, uh, to, to most anybody who's studied them for very long, uh, the result of a long, complex set of processes, and uh, that many hands, not just one, contributed to them. Um, and so that's, that's all there. Uh, but how much we can reconstruct about the process of transmission and growth, I, I'm a little bit dubious about. I just, I think we know that it happened. I don't know how well we can know. Uh, how it happened. And uh, so I don't put all my, my eggs in that basket. Uh, at the same time, I, I think we can't read the Bible simplistically and flatly when it, when it evidences a complexity uh, that, that is uh, more than just a flat reading would, would uh, allow. Ah, thank you so much, Dr. John. That, there's honestly so many ways we can go with this conversation. Um, and I feel like we all have a lot of thoughts. Uh, I guess one thing that comes to my mind is um, when we, I, at least when, when I learned more apologetics, uh, it's definitely more New Testament focused. And a lot of the apologetics, you know, even on a really popular pop level, like kind of a Da Vinci code, debating the Da Vinci code kind of thing. And, you know, those types of, I heard uh, that was true, by the way, I heard that that book, the whole book. Yeah, yeah. It's the, it's the sequel, The Angels and Demons, where he gets off on that. Right. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, <brother. laughs> Um Yeah, and so in New Testament, uh, it, a lot of it has to do with textual criticism about finding, you know, the earliest uh, source, you know, how we can trace and, and find all the different variants and go, okay, well, we can exclude this variant because it doesn't match up with his other text, which is older or more widespread, et cetera. But I, I think when I was in 
uh, my undergrad and learning that I was like, wow, this is fascinating. And then when I started moving into Old Testament, I was like, oh no, none of this works. You can't do any of this kind of stuff. Uh, you because, can, you just don't have as many manuscripts, right? Right, ex exactly. And it's like, thank God for Qumran, you know, like what, <laughs> what, would, what would we have done? But I guess I, I, because you, you mentioned about uh, the Old Testament coming about is a very long process that went through many hands, uh, many of which we have just no idea. So in, in that case, maybe could you talk a bit more about if the history or the literary processes aren't actually that clear? What, what, how do we, um, what's the best, I guess, what's the best way to read it? <laughs> how do we answer these questions that uh, history or uh, literary criticism or even apologetics just really can't answer for us? Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, for, in my mind, these questions that y'all are raising, which are so important, are, of course, most pertinent for the community of faith, right? We're sort of struggling with, in some sense, the sacred text and the long shadow of modernity and uh, enlightenment rationality and all the rest, and sort of making that work. And, you know, I don't disparage that entire project. I think it, some of it is just sort of part of the deal because, again, these texts are ancient, right? They come to us from another culture. And so the processes by which we, we, we bridge the big, ugly gap that Lessing talked about are in part these processes that have been developed through the course of the past centuries with the Enlightenment, the Renaissance, the Reformation, et cetera. You know, we, we can say that uh, someone might say, well, I don't really care that much about history. Thank you very much. I'm purely sort of a literary scholar. And yet the lexicography, how we know this Greek word means that or that Hebrew word means it, that's all dependent on kind of historical analysis. So you can't escape the history stuff. That's important to point out. I think the question is like how much credence you give to it within the sort of understanding of, of, of faith and a confessional approach to scripture, if that's what you have. And not everybody has it. Or actually, I would say everybody sort of does have it. <laughs> they just don't have it necessarily in religious categories. So I actually think that a kind of apologetic is also equally prevalent um, in non-confessional scholarship where the kind of bedrock is not, you know, is, is not, you know, an attempt to, to, to correlate something or explain something for purposes of religious faith, but is nevertheless also appealing to an external authority for validity. Archaeology is one, text criticism is another, philology is another. I mean, I've heard people even like say that it all comes down to a uh, to uh, population surveys. You know what I mean? That was like the bedrock of interpretation. How many people lived in the hill country, you know, in late bronze too? I mean, really? That's the bedrock? I mean, so there's always some sort of appeal, right, to something this, that, that founds that somehow sort of justifies or legitimates the thing. I get it. I think I get it. I think I understand it. I, I, I think my training has been fully in embedded in it in terms of historical critical pursuits, philological pursuits, uh, contextual ancient Near Eastern pursuits, text critical pursuits. I, I, I've received training in those areas. I, I work in those areas. But as a Christian, I don't think any of those areas are actually the end goal or even the starting point. Uh, and so that's where I think if they are the end goal or the starting point, the sine qua non or some of this, you know, assured critical results of scholarship, the, the you know, unshakable, that's just, that's not how, I don't think that's how faith works. 
you know, I, to give you an example, I had a, a new, I won't tell all the details, uh, but early in my teaching career, I was teaching a summer school class at Rutgers University. And I gave my typical lecture. It's a state university, you know, State University of New Jersey, go Scarlet Knights. And uh, a student came up to me who was religious herself, um, had listened to my, you know, standard lecture on the Pentateuch where I did the thing about, you know, here's how scholars for a couple centuries now have thought about the origins and growth of the Pentateuch in terms of the classical documentary hypothesis. And here's some other ways that think about the origin and development of the Pentateuch in non-documentary ways, et cetera, et cetera. And this was years ago now, more than 20 some years. And she was a devout religious person. And she came up to me and afterwards she said, well, I, I understand the lecture, I think, but, you know, Moses had to write, you know, he had to have written the, the the Torah. And I said, well, that's fascinating. You know, tell me, tell me why, you know? Well, I mean, I, I understood the lecture, but he just sort of had to. I said, well, you, you know, you heard the lecture. I tried to explain why some scholars at least think this way, you know, why? Well, you know, she wasn't really able to articulate, you know, the problem in the scholarship, but it kept coming back to this sort of Moses had to. And when it kind of finally came to a culmination, when she said, well, okay, like Moses wasn't a man, okay? You know, that's just it. I mean, he was a man, but he was like more than a man, you know? And at that point, you know, we were we were kind of at the bedrock, right? It, it, the bedrock was a, a kind of, you know, high estimation of Moses, you know, a high anthropology of Moses, a Mosesology, perhaps, if you will. But the but the authority was in the particular individual who laid behind the as the author behind these texts. Uh, I just think, you know, we've got too much uh, historical critical water under the bridge to probably be able to, to hold that credibly. We just we just don't know, you know most of these authors by name. And even some that we do by name, we know probably didn't write the whole thing, uh, at least in its current form. Uh, they probably had some disciples who came along and added some things and it grew and then there were scribes and all the rest. So the issue of sort of this bedrock, I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm trying to get at in terms of your question, Brandon, like what is the bedrock? And I think, I think, I mean, I'm an ordained minister, you know, I think of myself as a theologian, among other things. I mean, I think, I think that Christians can't get around the fact that it is a faith statement to talk about these texts as Christian scripture, as, as inspired scripture, revealing God and God's ways in some unique way. And that's a claim that at the end of the day, you kind of either believe in or you don't. And I think believe in is exactly the right word. I mean, hmm. it's, it's not it's not a cognitive uh, thing solely. It's, I mean, in the in the sense of believing as a statement of trust and confession. Um, and you know, you can kind of argue about it and make it plausible, make it reasonable. It's not irrational belief, but it is belief at the end of the day. And I think that's the bedrock in a, in a confessional mode. Not archaeology, not history, not philology, not text criticism, not ancient Near Eastern or Greco-Roman context. It's that disposition we adopt towards towards scripture as Christians. If, mm -hmm. if we do. Mm -hmm. I, that uh, example about the documentary hypothesis is very interesting because I, I, I sort of feel like Christians uniquely struggle, certain uh, Christians from, you know, certain perhaps conservative segments uniquely struggle with the Old Testament in this regard and, and will sort of happily entertain 
comparable notions in the New Testament, but not necessarily in the Old. So, for example, I noticed that in my theological education that we would happily speak about Q, for example, when we talk about gospel scholarship and sort of what explains the overlap of the synoptic gospel. Right, so, right. well, Mark and priority, Mark was written first and Matthew and Luke use Mark. And then what explains the overlap of Matthew and Luke? Well, probably they used a common source. We don't know what it is. So we call it Q, right? Very happy to it's real though, because I've seen a commentary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and, and, and obviously there are other ways to to explain the synoptic problem, but um, right. we were very happy to talk like that to to entertain the idea of Q. Um, but we weren't very happy to talk about JDP. We weren't very happy to talk about you know Deutero and Trito Isaiah. Um, and I just wonder. From your estimation, if if you have noticed something along those lines that's comparable, um, why you think that might be the case? Why do we uniquely struggle? I think uh, I'm supposing that this might be the case. Uh, why why might we uniquely struggle with the Old Testament with these questions, whereas it doesn't seem like we necessarily do in the same way with the New? Yeah, that's a great question, and I don't know if I have the answer. I mean, I think I suspect that people, maybe not in scholarly circles, but sort of in lay circles that, that folk who wouldn't like the documentary hypothesis might not like, um, you know, the synoptic problem solutions either, um, though it might just be harder to get around the synoptic problem than it is uh, the Pentateuch, um, because the Pentateuch at least doesn't, you know, retell the same story in four different books, right? I mean, it's, there, there, there is the Old Testament equivalent of First and Second Chronicles. Yeah, that's right. That's relative right. But who reads to Chronicles, the, really? I mean, yeah, to, yeah. But where is Jabez? But other than that. It, yeah, it's sort of it's sort of the Old Testament equivalent of the synoptic problem, right? Yeah. How does the Deuteronomistic history compare to First that's and Second right. Chronicles? And I do think that for, as you say, for more kind of conservative constituents, I imagine the historical Jesus issue is, is a comparable problem that, you know, even if there's some questions about the synoptic problem, it'd be another level of complexity and maybe, you know, concern over the quest for the historical Jesus. And, and, and we, know, we know that's the case in terms of some of the reception of the Jesus seminar back in the late 80s and 90s and all the rest. So I, I don't know, um, but I, I actually think you're right that the, the there's a disconnect here because it's the same sorts of issues, you know. And and as you know, when you study the the rise of of modern biblical criticism, I mean the the similarities in like you know the old the development of an Old Testament only discipline and a New Testament only discipline, you could just sub out the names, but they're doing the exact same things, uh, the same sort of moves. So. So really, they do kind of go hand in glove, and, and what works for one should work for the other. Um, maybe, maybe though, the, the synoptic problem, given its closeness and the importance of those texts for the church, you know, it rises to a higher level of, of attention than, I think, uh, the Samuel Chronicles material. And at least in critical discussion, it's, it's been easy for, I think, a lot of Biblical scholars to say the Chronicles materials is old and uh, is is a derivative, secondary to the Samuel King's material, and therefore think about it as revisionist historiography. And oh, isn't that cool? Um, and and you can kind of account for it or discount it, it accordingly. I I want to say that I sort of resonate with, or I get the um, you know the the intentions behind the apologetic move, and I I think I would want to differentiate myself between a kind of modernist approach to that 
where a lot of it is tied up to kind of historical accuracy, facticity, a certain kind of understanding of what a similarity or a verisimilitude means in the modern period uh, versus like an ancient sense of apologetics, which is a kind of a reasoned explanation for the faith or its document and so forth. And I, I think that though I myself, I don't think participate much at all in the modern form of apologetics, I think a lot of my own career in publishing and also in teaching is very much in that ancient mode of, of sort of ex- trying to account for the Bible, and in, in my case, the Old Testament, explain it, make a reasoned uh, explanation for what it is, why it is, how it functions within the Christian uh, economy of faith. And I actually think there's a drastic need for that. Um, you know, you we scroll through social media and people just love to, to, with a little bit of knowledge, think they know everything about the Bible and to discount it all. Um, and it's just not true, <laughs> you know? And so I can understand the apologetic impulse and I feel it when I read those social media posts and make my blood boil. And there's just like a little bit of knowledge that's just sort of idiotic. And, and then it's taken in a way that does uh, drastic damage or it's, it's deployed to do savage damage to the faith writ large. I have the apologetic impulse at that moment too, but I just don't wanna go the modernist route. I wanna go the other route, which would be in my mind, not appealing to say, you know, an external uh, extra biblical locus of authority, history, philosophy, but instead refer to the biblical text itself as the locus of authority. So whatever the issue is, I mean, to think about it in its biblical and canonical context, see how the scripture itself wrestles with that issue. Also, see if the scripture really says that. If people paraphrase, uh, you know, scripture erroneously all the time. Um, so I think I want to differentiate between those two types of apologetics. And also at the same time, the, the kind of well-meaning intention that sort of rises to why, what, what, gives, what gives rise to this impulse. I, I get that for sure. I think it's just a question of how we, how we pursue it. Yeah, I mean, from, you know, Christians have been doing apologetics from the Old Testament since the beginning. I mean, that is how the Christian faith began uh, and in its in the early church. And so I, I similarly feel that, you know, impulse to either maybe not correct someone, but you know, get frustrated on social media. So I feel that and and I, rule according to his folly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> or he will see yeah. lies in his own eyes yeah. or. Oh, or and that brings us to the point is there's also a verse don't answer, answer right yeah is and is folly of text criticism i've done some work in the original manuscripts on this verse and when it says folly in the original manuscripts it says face facebook fool really it's a oh. don't answer a facebook fool <laughs> i haven't published that so keep it on the down low but i'm it's it's remarkable when i found that it was my yeah. if you put that on twitter it'll it'll go viral for sure and then several <laughs> weeks later it'll show up on my instagram feed or something again and again uh, <laughs> and then, yeah. um no but i but i think it brings us to an, an interesting point is that you know for those uh readers who may feel that apologetic impulse but wish to kind of tame it <laughs> and uh, move on and ask the more interesting questions and those who want to read the old testament as christian scripture how how should they approach you know certain passages that seem to contradict their that their apologetic bells are ringing they're like there's a contradiction here and i have to tame it uh i have to fix this so-called problem 
I mean, I think in, in, in some, I'm working on a project right now, it has to do with, uh, with poetry and the Bible and all the rest. And, you know, poetry just doesn't care about contradictions. Um, W.H. Auden said, uh, poetry is the, the uh, uh, clear expression of mixed feelings. It's a wonderful little phrase about poetry. Or uh, to switch from poetry to my favorite uh, linguist, John McWhorter. Uh, John McWhorter says about language, you know, the purpose of language or the, the goal of language is not logical consistency, it's clarity, you know. And so as McWhorter describes it, you know, double negatives, in, you know, if you have two negatives in, in, in a mathematical equation, it comes out a positive. That's not how it works for the double negative in, 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 in English. Double negatives in English are usually more slang or, or, or you know, informal talk, but they are abundantly clear, right? I mean, they're emphatic. They don't turn into the opposite like math, right? That would be a logical understanding. That's not how language works. Language traffics in, in clarity, right? So now with contradictions, where's the clarity there? Uh, I suppose that's the next question. But I think the first thing I would say in this regard uh, to someone struggling with, with contradictory materials is that, you know, evidently um, the church, the, the, the people who wrote this material and the church that preserved it uh, and, uh, and Israel who preserved it in the Old Testament and, and bequeathed it also uh, to the church of the spirit that inspired it or however you want to put it evidently didn't have a problem with the contradiction. Uh, otherwise, it presumably would have been uh, excised or eliminated in some way. Uh, so my own little you know, phrase about this in some context has been, you know, contradictions don't hurt, but they do make you think, you know, they do make you think. So answer a fool according to his folly or he'll seem wise in his own eyes, uh, lest he seem wise in his own eyes. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be a fool yourself. Proverbs 26, right next to each other and say in adjoining verses, which one? Well, both, right? Both. The wise heart seeks knowledge. The wise heart is prudent and will know when to answer a Facebook fool and when not to answer a Facebook fool, let alone the Twitter fool and the Instagram fool. So contradictions don't hurt, but they make you think, which fool is this that I'm dealing with? You know, and maybe it doesn't depend solely on the medium, <laughs> but, but the fool, but also, um, do I need to answer at all, right? Um, and, and so I think the contradictions make us think, they may make us contextualize, they may make us more prudent in the moment, um, and they may suggest that uh, there's more than one option on the table. That is to say, I think one thing that Scripture offers us with quote-unquote contradictory images of God, for instance, is uh, the simple fact that you just can't get God said right or easily with one thing. If you say God is love and that's the end of the story, well, not really, right? Because if you can speak the infinite God in three words, your God's probably not infinite anymore, but rather remarkably finite and small and kind of boring and uninteresting at the end of the day. So the contradictory uh, perspectives about the deity, oh, you know, parental, oh, uh, militaristic, oh, a mammalian, uh, oh, you know, uh, geomorphic, uh, meteorological, whatever. All these provide a robust perspective on God and, and, and offer a reader more than one way to kind of slice the onion, as it were. And I think that makes the Bible infinitely more interesting, especially interesting to faith. I mean, I just can't help but say it, 
here. I find God in church most of the time an entirely boring character. I mean, very uninteresting, hardly interested in reading about, let alone worshiping. I mean, the, you know, God's presented in so many sermons and in, and in Christian worship services. It's just, it's, it's flat and boring. And I'd love to hear a really, you know, rip roar of a text about God getting mad and doing something, because at least that would make God interesting. Now, I might not like it all the time, but at least it offers me a more of a full orb perspective. And I think the contradictions in the text, if that's what we call them, we tensions, whatever you want to call them, they offer us more than one tool in our toolbox. Uh, it don't have to be deployed at the same time, right? You don't use a screwdriver and a hammer at the same time, but you might need both at some point in the project. And I think that's what scripture offers us in these, in these different kinds of texts that seem at odds or seem tensive or are downright contradictory. The text still may be quite clear to go back to, to McWhorter. Uh, the clarity may not be an issue at all. And also it might uh, make us think um, and may not at the end of the day be, be a big deal at all. Only a big deal for people who think in logical categories of consistency all the time. And, you know, the church dealt with that all the way back in Marcion. I mean, Marcion couldn't handle that. And, uh, and they said, thanks, but no thanks to Marcion's option, right? It just wasn't right for the church. So, you know, another kind of, vignette that jumps out in my mind about this apologetic kind of uh, impulse and so forth and the kind of uh, various approaches. As I remember early on, I was teaching in my first appointment at seminary and a student was doing campus ministry at a nearby uh, secular university. And the student was sort of exercised uh, pastorally, of course, on behalf of his students, his university students who were taking this course Bible as literature or whatever, or some religion course where the, the, the prof was delighting and highlighting all these contradictions and then using them as kind of, a, you know, reason to make fun of those who had faith. And one of them was, you know, who killed Goliath, right? You know, is David or is it the other guy that's mentioned, you know, Elkanah, whatever. You know, and, and I remember saying to this student, uh, he sort of wanted, he could tell he wanted me to have an answer, like, is it David or, you know, what, how do you do? And I remember saying to him, maybe it was a punt, but I would like to think it was maybe more, uh, more insightful than that. Um, I said, I think I would encourage your students to stop thinking about that as a problem, you know, <laughs> as a problem that's majorly worth their time, you know. Uh, it's just, it's just not that big of a problem. And it's just not that important. Uh, and, you know, again, if, if logical consistency is what you're looking for, you know, you shouldn't be in the, in, in, uh, <laughs> in the humanities in general, right? You should be, uh, but maybe you should be in the philosophy department or logic department or something like that, mathematics department. Um, so I think, you know, that, that kind of vignette for me is, is, to say, you know, these issues that we sometimes struggle with, you know, they, maybe they're just not problems if we think about scripture as primarily a literary artifact, but not only that, that could, that could, I can understand how some people might say, oh, well, that's just sort of punting or that becomes kind of mythic or Gnostic in some way or docetic or something. But I think it's in another way, it's just actually succumbing to the world of scripture. It's, it's giving yourself over scripture. This is something that Walter Moberly uh, speaks about in terms of taking the text with imaginative seriousness. You know, history by itself, as I understand the, the, the modern historiography, is never going to get me 
to where I really want to go as a Christian, namely the existence of God, <laughs> you know, uh, whether or not a miracle could happen. I mean, just at least in theory, you know, it doesn't get you to uh, the canon. Um, all, you know, history doesn't get us anywhere there. Uh, it can only get at the most to some descriptions about those things, the growth of the canon or that, that a canon eventually exists or when is the moratorium canon, you know, uh, what is what's contained in there and what's the date and all this. So it seems to me that giving yourself over to the to the literary world of the text itself is actually a more faithful dis, disposition and inhabiting that world. And what that means is, you know, to go back to where we kind of began, how best to read it is how best to read it is to read it as it comes to us. Poetry, story, parable, narrative, um, law, maxim, etc. And I think when we do that, we get clues as to what these texts are about in and of themselves. And then we bring our external knowledge to bear as well. So, you know, the old litmus test of, you know, did Jonah really, is Jonah really in that big fish for three days and three nights? I mean, you know, it, as a confessional Christian, you know, if I'm confessing in the creed, like I do every Sunday, that God created heaven and earth, and that God brought Jesus back from the dead, and, you know, that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, you know, those are pretty big. I mean, I, I think that the three days, three nights, if God wants to do it, sure. You know what I mean? And God created the whole universe, then this has got to be a trifle for God. But does the text really, you know, require you to think of Jonah's story as an explicit historical literary account? I think there's actually plenty of details, hints, clues in the story of Jonah that suggest that its author knows that this is a, a satire a parable, whatever you want to call it, a good story, a, a big fish story, if you will. And, uh, and, and if that's what the author is communicating here and there with a wink in the eye, why am I trying to do better and cramming it into something like, you know, that's on this side of the enlightenment? Uh, that actually would be reading against the grain of the text. It would be taking literally what's meant to be metaphorical. I may actually miss the point. I might, you know, walk away with, Oh my gosh, I now believe God performs miracles. I already believed that. Mm. Uh, what I want to know is if Jonah is making me believe that in that way, or if it's something else. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's funny because of course there was this recent fisherman yeah. who was swallowed by a whale. And of course what, you know, what I saw on social media was an immediate apologetic sort of reaction to it, which is like, see the story of Jonah is true. And, you know, cheekily without responding, actually, you know, I think to myself, I think for a lot of people, if there's a kind of historical hangup, it's less about the fish and more about all the Ninevites converting. <laughs> right, right. Or, you know, that was still a story about the axe head floating, right? Mm. I mean, I think it's also possible to talk about, I forget the exact term now, I was sitting on the dissertation committee recently, uh, and it was a dissertation on comparative method. Um, and uh, the, the author used a nice phrase, which eludes me now at the moment, unfortunately, but there's, there's also a distinction I think we can draw between sort of a narrated history, right, and, and what we can reconstruct or, or know now. So I have no problem saying that the, the, the people who wrote these stories, like the axe head floating, believed that the axe head floated, you know, um, but that's not something we can verify now. I mean, uh, or even I think that it would matter much if we could. Um, again, 
in the in the Christian communion, we already believe in the miraculous, especially the most important of the miraculous things God has done in creation, incarnation, resurrection. These other things are trifles. And if they don't really contribute to those big three, <laughs> maybe they don't matter that much. And so, sure, I think that the ancient people thought all kinds of miracles happened. I think most people in the world believe miracles happen almost every day and would say they've experienced some of them, whether large or small. So I don't really think, uh, you know, a litmus test about an axe head floating or Jonah being in the in the big fish. Th these are these aren't uh, salvific moments uh, on which the faith depends. And they're they're true in the literary story itself, the literary fabula. They're, they're, that's their functioning. They, they have an impact. And you can, as a reader, uh, as a person of faith or otherwise, succumb to that world, live in that world for the duration of the reading and the interpretive process. And I think that's a faithful reading. That's taking the text with imaginative seriousness. Um, and, you know, again, I think it contributes, uh, but, but in a minor, minor key to any sort of historical apologetics. Yeah, maybe this is, might be switching uh, directions a bit, but, you know, some people have latched on to the kind of apologetic reading, it, but in a kind of a reverse way of saying, oh, well, thank God it didn't happen. Thank God. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. the conquest you know jericho was never raised and you know i think uh, douglas earl has this funny kind of bit of like if jericho wasn't raised was our faith in vain and <laughs> yeah if yeah, jericho yeah. was raised was our is our faith uh in vain yeah, you that's, know? Right, that's right um and you know other thing i mean I, I know you've uh i think you're working on or you've yeah, I, i've heard you present on um uh, the the mauling of the the, the she bears um yeah, that's right. you know and did it really happen like you know, and obviously these aren't the important questions, but some people might, who kind of approach the text uh, with moral categories might say, well, thank God it didn't actually happen. But I wonder <laughs> if you might say, like, actually, that's, if that's not the most important question, if that's not our, the, the bedrock of our interpretation and of mm -hmm. our faith, then how do we kind of approach these, the, you know, reapproach these questions mm -hmm. uh, in a moral category? Yeah. So what does it mean for a story to happen? You know what I mean? Uh, that's kind of a professorial sleight of hand, right? But I remember early in my teaching career, I got a question, uh, a kind of anonymous question at the end of the semester. And one of them was, I always do this in my classes. You know, it's kind of like uh, taking uh, sex education in middle school. You know, you get to write a question anonymously. <laughs> you know, So you, you have a question, but it, you know, you're not going to be identified. So I always let students ask me uh, hot seat questions is what I call them. And then, but they have to ask them ahead of time. I have a chance to, to think about them a little bit. And I think it was my first semester teaching. I got, did the book of Job really happen? You know, and I love the way it was presented because it gave me all sorts of options, right? I said, what does it mean for a book to happen, <laughs> right? The book of Job really happens every time we read it. I mean, that's when the book of Job happens. And that's when it does its work. You know, biblical scholars, as far as I know, I haven't checked maybe the latest commentary uh, on this, but as far as I know, most biblical scholars aren't even sure where the land of us is, right, or was. Where, where, where was us? That sounds better than where is us? <laughs> where was us? You know, so yeah, how much, if you can't even know where this place is, you know, what makes you think that all the interpretive juice, all the, the existential significance is housed 
in a person in a locale you can't even place in time or space. Uh, and even if you could, does it really matter? I mean, I, I, I went from that kind of, you know, professorial sleight of hand. What does it mean for a book to, to talk about how I imagine my grandmother, may she rest in peace, if and when she read the book of Job and found it meaningful? How did that happen? And I seriously doubt it happened because she thought to herself, oh, I must investigate where the land of us is and identify it as a, you know, in the book. Where's the book? Is it early because of the you know, poem of the righteous sufferer or, you know, in Mesopotamian examples, or is it late because it's an elaborate cipher for the exile? You know, Grandma Jensen didn't care about that. Grandma Jensen cared about what goes down in the book of Job. Who says what, how they say it, uh, you know, and how that, that poem and the, and, the, and the prologue and epilogue attach and, and contribute to its meaning. So, you know, I get it, especially with something that people don't like, like the conquest or the Elisha and the bears. Oh, it didn't happen. You know, it happened in this text. <laughs> it happened in the text. It, to me, it's a very dissatisfying um, apologetic on the other side about the conquest in particular. Uh, it, it also imagines, I think, that archaeology is more secure than it really is. Um, I just, I, I myself don't have that much faith in, uh, in, in, in the archaeological reconstructions. I mean, I, 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 to, to some degree I do, but I, not ultimate existential faith <laughs> in them. Uh, I had a colleague, John Hayes, who is a noted uh, historian of ancient Israel, uh, who, who said, he used to say in his Alabama farmer accent, uh, the only thing that will make you less confident in archaeology is to uh, go on a dig. Uh, and <laughs> be an archaeologist on dig. That will eliminate all your faith <laughs> in the uh, security of archaeology. <laughs> and it sort of always, always stuck with me. But uh, yeah, I, I see that impulse, and it's an apologetic impulse too. I just think it's at that point you got another problem on your hands that the scripture is telling a dishonest story, and at that point you got to figure out why that is, and um, and that that leads to another kind of apology. Well, it's dishonest on purpose. Well, that's really bad. That's a that's a tough judgment on scripture. It's it you know duplicitous on purpose, or oh, it's it's erroneous due to historical um, time and all the rest. See, so, but you're you're on a kind of trajectory now. It solves one problem, but it opens up another, and you have to kind of keep keep working working the angles. And yeah, I think something like the conquest. You know, there's ways that scripture speaks to the conquest, addresses the conquest, constrains the conquest, limits the conquest that we would be entirely happy with. And it's all happening within the pages of scripture itself without appeal to, oh, well, Jericho wasn't even inhabited um, or whatever, you know. Um, I, on, on the point on Jericho and some of the things you're saying about archaeology, I, I remember uh, somebody trying to, you know, prove that it was inhabited, that here, here's all this evidence for Jericho, therefore the story uh, containing scripture is, you know, correct and true. And just thinking how flimsy that was. And I was like, well, I could take you to King's Cross, but that doesn't mean that, that Harry Potter happened, you know. But you know, they did build one. They did build the platform, you know, <laughs> and you can go wait in line and go and take your picture by it. I, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I have, I have too. I have too. I just think the, 
the logic, the argument, like, hey, I can take you to Jerusalem and these different places. Therefore, the stories are true. It's like, but yeah, I can take you to London. And you know what I mean? Right, it's, right, right. I don't understand that logic. Yeah. And I mean, there is, I think, again, just go back to something we talked about earlier. There is something sort of irreducibly historical about Christian faith or the biblical faith. I mean, you know, in the creed, suffered under Pontius Pilate. I mean, you know, everything else sounds quite ethereal, if you ask me, right? Or one could say that, you know, Alice in Bible land. But then Pontius Pilate, now we know when he was prefect of Pilate. And we know the dates. We've got inscriptions of him. You know, so now you've got that whole Jesus thing localized. But it's not only that, right? In fact, uh, it's an important mention, but Pontius Pilate doesn't dominate the creed. And the historical aspect isn't the primary, uh, you know, uh, piece of, of creedal belief. So I think it is amazing, you know, that you can get on a plane if you live in the States, fly over there, and you can be in Capernaum and see Peter's house, and you go to Jerusalem and all the rest, Jericho and all the rest. It, there's something important about that, um, but that doesn't mean that the entirety of the faith is coterminous with the historical project. So I, I really like uh, borrowing some from terminology of, of Bill Brown, who's used it in terms of science and, and, and uh, faith. These are not non-overlapping magisteria. They're not uh, completely overlapping magisteria, but they are tangentially overlapping magisteria. So you can't escape the historical thing per, you know, forever. Archaeology remains very important, but it's just not the whole thing. It's, it's a piece of the puzzle. It's like suffered under Pontius Pilate, uh, which is, you know, what, um, three words, four words in the, in the Latin, uh, as opposed to the other 73 uh, words in Latin that comprise the Apostles' Creed. I counted one time, it's 77 words. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned about, you know, reading with the grain as opposed to reading against it. And I wonder if you could speak more uh, just briefly about reading, yeah, reading with the grain, a hermeneutic of love, uh, uh, a love that uh, seeks understanding uh, reading charitably, not just our opponents in the modern day with apologetics, but reading charitably uh, the sacred text? Yeah, it's a great question. And, uh, you know, when you, you kind of invoked Anselm there with his Fides Quarens Intellectum, that faith seeks understanding. And I think it's important to kind of point out in this context and context of what y'all are, are, are after that, that uh, understanding may not be, you know, uh, it's different than faith seeks kind of full explanation, uh, right, or justification. I think that's a kind of different, different formulation than faith seeks understanding. Um, but, you know, in, in our day and age, living, you know, where we live on this side of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance, the Reformation, and, and even more recent developments um, in interpretation theory or, you know, uh, historiography, archaeology, et cetera, you know, it's, there's lots in scripture that causes us concern and that should cause us concern. I mean, uh, if, to, if it didn't cause us concern, we would sort of not be our historical selves in our moment in the 21st century um, where we, we have certain concerns that the ancients didn't have and certain worries that the ancients didn't have. So I, I don't want to be cavalier in, in, in thinking about or, or suggesting that it's easy to read with the grain. It's not always easy to read with the grain. And I think that also might be by design. Um, you know, I've, I've, I've uh, 
since I came across it, been struck with this, this comment from Augustine on, in his sermon on John 1, of all things. He's not talking about some obscure passage in Leviticus or something. On John 1, he makes this uh, comment that the text was not read for us to understand, that the text was read because we don't understand it and to grieve that we don't understand it. And to figure out what is preventing us from understanding it. <laughs> and I just, it's just a stunning comment from one of the great interpreters of all time about a, one of the most famous texts of all time. In the beginning was the word. What does that mean? I don't know. I should be sad I don't know. What is wrong with me that I don't know? What can I fix in myself that I might somehow know? So I think when I come across those things that cause me problem, um, I kind of want to have Augustine's idea in mind, you know, is there something happening here that I don't understand that I should understand, you know, and is the text call forth a more complicated, deep understanding? I mean, this is the fourfold sense, right, of, of interpretation in the early church and also in, in the ancient synagogue with its uh, multiple approaches to scripture. That when the scripture is really difficult, when it seems most problematic, most off-putting, aha, that's when it must mean even more than it seems to mean. And that's when those who are truly faithful uh, dig in and start thinking about the multiple ways the scripture means. It's not just about some Canaanites in, in genocide back in the Iron Age. It's about the spiritual life. It's about giants in the land uh, that prevent us from encountering God's promises in the full. You know, it's about crossing the Red Sea in the waters of baptism, et cetera. So I don't want to be cavalier about the difficulties we have when we, we, we encounter things like violence or patriarchy in the Bible. These things are real. They have to be thought through. They have to be contextualized. History helps with that. But they also have to be canonically contextualized, I think. And scripture helps with that as well in the way it might constrain and contain violence, for instance, or the way it might suggest alternatives to patriarchy. Uh, but I do think that faithful Christian reading ultimately depends on, on, a, on a disposition of trust. You, you put it in terms of love. And, you know, Augustine here is, is, I think, helpful once more that if it doesn't, if the interpretation doesn't result in better love of God and better love of neighbor, it's probably not the right interpretation of scripture. I, I think that's a nice little, uh, you know, statement about interpretation. Now, it's ideal in a way, right? And may not always be obvious in the case of some of the more obscure verses. But I, I like it in the sense that what it suggests is that every text might actually eventuate in better love of God and neighbor. And that means that Augustine is commending to us, that we sort of have a disposition of trust towards this text. You know, we might have problems with it. We might be suspicious about certain aspects of it. It's patriarchy, it's violence, whatever. But at the end of the day, we think that if we sit with it long enough, it's going to yield something. Um, it's going to address us in some way uh, for the for the better. I, I, I really like to quote my colleague uh, here at Duke, Ellen Davis. Um, I like to quote her book, Wondrous Depth, where she captures, this is a kind of paraphrase of what she says, where she speaks about the best way to read scripture in, in terms of kind of hear, hearing it and whatnot is to, is to think about scripture as an urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary pressure on our lives. You know, urgent speaking presence, exercising salutary 
pressure on our lives. Uh, do we hear it as exercising malevolent pressure? We must not be hearing it right. It's salutary pressure, you know, benevolent pressure, uh, not, not evil, malevolent, malicious, duplicitous, benevolent pressure. So that's a disposition and it's, it's cultivated and it's not easy for moderns. It takes time. Reading scripture is not like reading a, a tweet or a blog post or whatever. And especially now in the 21st century, it takes time to sort of build up a resistance, if you don't mind me putting it in terms of inoculation, you know, building up a resistance to scripture to be able to read it uh, at length and with that kind of disposition that says, oh man, on the face of it, this kind of blows my mind or I may not quite like it, um, but I'm going to sit with it and let it speak to me as an urgent speaking presence exercising salutary pressure on that's that's what I really want. I mean, that that's what I think would make the difference in the churches, not Christians who know like the history of the ancient Near East better or the Greco-Roman world better. I, that's that's not unhelpful, but it's not where the juice is. Uh, what would help the world a lot better in church is Christians who knew the entirety of Scripture better, uh, who were fluent in the language of Scripture. That I think would make a, a difference. Yeah, amen to that. I really love that word, especially the idea about, you know, loving God and loving our neighbor more through our reading of, of scripture and knowing scripture well. Because I think especially when we're having this conversation about apologetics, so often the Bible is a weapon, right? It's a, it's, yeah. a tool, it's a tool. It's something that we use. We beat our opponents over the heads with it. And I, I just love that that word and uh, really appreciate having you having you on the podcast with us. Oh, thanks a lot. Thanks for thanks for having us. I, I in light of that last line, I, I I'll, I'll transgress again into your testament, John, to say, uh, what about that image of Mary? A sword would pierce your own heart too. You know, I mean, the word of God's living and sharper than any sword, but it might end up piercing your own heart too. So, mm -hmm. thanks for having me on, you guys. I really appreciate it.